You are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Toon Dreesen is an architect, self-described lover of food, and relentless advocate for better architecture. He joined me on the podcast to discuss procurement in the field, why it's broken, and what we can do about it. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share your comments with us. So today we have Tone Dreesen with us uh, on the podcast, and we're here to talk about procurement. Thanks, Tone, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right into the topic, and uh, can you describe procurement in your own terms? So procurement generally to me is the means by which we buy things and we say that we want to buy something in a particular way and instead of just going to the grocery store and saying I would like to procure a banana, we go through this convoluted complex process that helps us decide the kind of thing that we want to buy and gives us the, in some cases, the illusion that we're doing it in a fair, neutral and transparent way that makes it fair to everybody. So why is procurement important to you specifically? So procurement to me is really important because the, I think that the way that we're buying things, and particularly professional services, is kind of flawed. And, and it's also the way in which we buy construction products, construction services, engineering, architecture, but a whole variety of things. When we think about, you know, when we're buying a a new transit system, that's a procurement process. Uh, we talk about buying Presto Pass, getting the software that gives us the Presto Pass, that was a procurement decision. And and because the, the way that we're doing procurement is what's setting us up for continued problems or long-term failure. It's sort of like, you know, if you're going to the store, if you know you want to make dinner and you go to the store and you just buy a bunch of you know, stuff that it's on sale or it's cheap or you get what's what comes quickly to mind, then you're going to get something and you're going to get enough ingredients and you might make dinner. But is it really going to be satisfying? Is it really going to give you the best meal that you could have? And if you do procurement right, when you're making dinner at the grocery store, you get a better result. Mm-hmm. And why is the current procurement model a problem to you? And even though you've already kind of answered that question superficially can you go a little more in detail sure so the reason i think procurement the way we're doing it today is a problem is we have this illusion that 
what we buy, we have to equate with getting best value. And, and there's this belief that best value means lowest price. And, and that might be true if you're buying, you know, a particular product and you look at, say, exactly the same sheet of plywood. You get a three-quarter inch sheet of plywood, it's four feet by eight feet, and you can get it for $5 in one place and $6 in another. If all things are equal, the $5 one is a better value than the $6 one. But when it comes to things like professional services, it's significantly different. And, and what it really comes down to is how do we get things for best value if what we're doing is forcing people to submit the lowest price? Because price is related to effort. And when you're buying professional services, you're buying the services that create something that has lasting long-term value. So if you want, say, a building that is climate responsive or innovative or very creative or very interesting or has to do a certain thing, then you need to have enough services behind that to come up with those ideas. If you limit the amount of service, you limit the amount of innovation and you limit the amount of service by cutting the fee. And in, it, in that sense, we architects are in a large part our own worst enemy because I might look at a job and say, look, that fee is worth, you know, say that fee is worth uh, $200 to do this job. It's worth $200. But someone else might come along and say, well, I'll do it for 190 Well, I look at that the next time and go, okay, well, geez, I lost the last one by 10 bucks. I'm going to lower my fee to 170 And then you keep going and going. And before you know it, you're doing things below cost. And, and that's not right and that's not fair. And it it makes the process of getting something interesting unfair to the public because the public doesn't get the best opportunity to see what I can do. Yeah, and I think it, what you're saying is it relates to the procurement of commodities versus services or high-value items. So like you said, a sheet of plywood is pretty much guaranteed that anywhere you buy it, it's going to be a similar quality whereas professional services are intimately tied to creativity and innovation, at least in the field of design and engineering. So the less you pay for something, the less innovation or creativity you're going to get. Is that a fair interpretation of what you said? Yeah, I think that's a very fair interpretation. I think that what you're getting as a result of a low bid fee is low services. But it's really, it's an illusion because if I bid really low to get the job because the request for proposal has something something unattainable in it, like let's say that, you know, they want to have, the client wants to have all the design, all the working drawings, everything done in six weeks. And I say, well, there's no way the client's going to sign off on that. It's impossible to get that. You're not going to achieve this. And it's something that's out of my control, like say a planning approval. Well, I bid low to get the job, and then the minute there's a delay or there's an out-of-scope change, I hit them up for extras. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon, my, my total of my extras is what the fee would be to do the job fairly. Mm -hmm. and, and who loses out on this? Well, the public, because someone has bid low, nailed them with extras to, you know, to provide something that we should have just had a fair fee to begin with. And if I'm not mistaken, there are firms to whom this is a, an actual business model the way they operate right yeah absolutely where do you think this um commodity mindset in the 
provision of professional services come from? Because it's got to come from somewhere. It's been historically that way for a long time. Do you have any? Do we have any idea of why that is? Philosophically, I think that it's, and I don't really have proof of this, but philosophically, I think that this um, stems from a cultural devaluation of design and the role of design in the built environment as a whole in our society and culture. We used to think that, um, or we used to believe that architecture was something really special and something that we invested in and we cherished and we thought was particularly special. And we used to believe that these things were important. And you can see that in the way we used to make buildings. Um, we, used to, we used to kind of approach them very holistically. And it's not that architects were on a pedestal, but architects were seen as having value and adding value to a project. And, and what's kind of devolved over the last half century is that we now think of architecture much more as a commodity that every architect is the same and every architect can do the same thing. And I remember having a meeting with with a client group and it was a whole bunch of architects in the room and he said, look, you know, if if the top three architects all can meet the same qualifications and are just as good as, as they're, you know, are, are equally qualified, I'll take the cheapest. Well, yeah, you're going to get the guy who's going to be the cheapest. You're going to get the guy who's going to do the least amount of service up front and who's going to find a reason to find a way to make an extra. And is that really the mindset you want to go into when you start? Um, and it's because people who are doing procurement don't know what architecture is and they don't know what it does and they don't even understand the legal framework that requires architects to be involved or what they do. They just think that architects are like, you know, other service providers, like, you know, whether it's plumbers or interior designers or engineers that, you know, somehow we're just service providers and one is just like another. And it's, we're not like sheets of plywood. And, and you, you, when you start thinking about goods versus services, you can make a comparison and you can say like really, really, really cheap toilet paper is, is one thing and really, really good toilet paper is another. Well, which one do you want to buy? Well, we can all imagine what really cheap toilet paper is like. Do we want to have the lowest, barest, worst quality um, as a result of buying the cheapest toilet paper? We know what that result would be. And do we want the lowest priced, most basic services when it comes to designing buildings that last for centuries? It, it's, it's a tough question. Yeah, and the toilet paper analogy is interesting because if we assume that the lowest quality toilet paper is so abrasive that you're going to use twice as much or it's so thin that you're going to use twice as much, then you gotta, the price alone of the commodity is not enough to gauge the value of it. You also got to go into... Um, how much is being used and over time whether the a more expensive brand might actually be cheaper because of the way it's being used. So I think it's it's a very important point, even though we're talking about toil almost toilet humor here. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good analogy to look at service providers and um, thinking that... Um, Uh, procurement people should really look at what's happening behind the scenes and what's actually being offered as mm -hmm. opposed to just price because price alone is a great signal to have an idea of where you stand but there's other factors that need to be um, to be taken into consideration so that leads me to the next question is what are alternatives in your mind like um, and I would almost say this is as much an 
advocacy problem as it is a procurement problem, um, because you you were talking about the sort of devaluation of the architecture in the public's eye. So that's a that's a PR problem, but also. Uh, what are alternatives to traditional procurement that would be more fair both to the clients and in the case of public projects to the taxpayers? One of the alternatives is actually the only legal method of procurement in the U.S. for all federal and state government procurement of architecture and engineering for the last 45 years. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, United States, the land of the home and of the brave or whatever it is, um, has such a sort of a a mandated structured system, you think it would be sort of a free market, but it's actually not. And the reason they've done that is because in 1972 or 73 was passed the Brooks Act. And what it mandates is something called quality-based selection. And there's different ways of structuring it, but in essence, it's what is an ideal system. And basically what it says is instead of opening up a request for proposal and sort of throwing it out there like a net and catching to see whoever might be interested and you end up with, you know, dozens of uh, responses, um, you, you cast a wider net that's more general and you qualify a handful of people. Um, and then with that sort of, you know, narrower pool of people, you refine a scope of work, you define what the project parameters are, and then you get more refined responses. Think about it like this. If, if you wanted to hire somebody, say you say you were a government department and you wanted to hire somebody, you would create a job description and you would post it and you would say, look, we're looking to hire an architect. We want them to have 10 to 15 years of experience and have this kind of qualification and degree and this kind of education. And we're prepared for you know, a salary that's in, say, this range to that range, say you know, ninety-five dollars to $120,000 is the salary range. We're prepared to pay that. And this is the type of work that the person will be doing. Well, if I saw that ad posted somewhere, I might look at it and say, yeah, okay, I qualify for that. I'm going to write a cover letter and put in my resume and submit. And, and I might also look at that and say, well, that's really interesting. I qualify, but I'm not really interested in that salary range. It's too low or I'm not interested in moving you know, to whatever town this is in. And so you would very quickly look at this and say yes or no. And then the people who responded to it the person doing the hiring could kind of make a short list and say, yeah, look, these for five people are really interesting. We want to interview them. We're going to talk with them. And then the top person, the most qualified person would get offered the job. And you would say to that person, hey, Tony, look, you're the most qualified person. We want to offer you this job and we're going to pay you at the bottom range of the salary. Well, I could respond to that application and that interview and that offer and say, yeah, you know, I'm not interested because I need to make this much. I think I'm worth this much. You could have a negotiation about it. And and that's entirely normal. And if that process didn't work out, then, you know, you, the hiring party, would say, sorry, it didn't work out. You go to your next candidate and you would negotiate with them. And, and you can imagine how easy that process is in, in hiring someone for HR. But we don't do that for architecture. Instead, we go through this long, involved job process, job hiring process, and then we say to the person who is the most qualified, okay, who's willing to do this for the lowest salary? And even though the job posting is worth ninety-five to one hundred and twenty thousand a year, the person who's going to get the job may be very qualified, but someone who's willing to do it for forty-five thousand a year, they'll get it. And instead, that's that's completely absurd in HR, but yet that's what we're doing in hiring uh, architects for procurement. That's a great analogy. So would it be? 
similar to saying that uh, if HR functioned the same way as procurement, they would basically ask people to do a whole bunch of work for free and then ask them to bid on the job and the lowest bidder would get the job and they would get all the ideas from the other people who did work for free. In a sense, yeah. Okay. Like, you know, if, if there wasn't a request for proposal and in, in the scope they asked for really innovative design solutions and that was going to be part of the deliverable, well, how would you score that? If I put those design ideas into my request for proposal, I'm giving away my trade secrets. I'm submitting that. I'm not getting paid for it. And then, say, the government agency that was reviewing it might look at the solutions and say, hey, that's a great idea. We never thought about that. Give that to the winner. Give that to the successful bidder um, because this guy just threw his ideas out. And, and, and that's completely unfair. Um, you know, we did a response to a proposal that had a completely unattainable uh, sustainability goal. And we got zero points on the request for proposal, in part because the people reviewing the proposal had no idea what I was referencing. They didn't even understand what the question they were asking. And, and that's part of a QBS, a quality-based selection process, is that you're, you have those discussions say, look, you've asked for this completely unattainable, unachievable goal. Here's what you're asking for. Here's why achieving it is so difficult. I'm prepared to do something else instead that's going to get you to your end goal, but in a better way. And that allows you to have that sort of more confidential discussion, share ideas, and you can show why you think you're the best. So if the QBS has been in, in force for 40 plus years in the US, how do we have an idea of how well it's working for them? Well, it, I mean, it depends. It depends on who you talk to. There are, there are folks who have gone through that process and, and they bid on the work. And the result is not always, has in the past not always been maybe particularly beautiful architecture or particularly special because they disclose what the fee is and they say this is a fee we're going to pay and and maybe that fee isn't quite enough or maybe it needs to be adjusted. Um, and it's also a question of what's being scored. So how much effort or emphasis is being placed on previous experience with that type of project. If you're looking, say, to design a high school and you're only looking at people who have ever designed high schools, well, you're only going to get people who have experience designing high schools and their limited scope of experience and innovation in designing the same thing year after year. But if you want to design a high school and you're willing to open the idea to other building typologies or similar types of projects or similar exposures or similar sites, you start to open the door a little bit to more innovative ideas. So it's a question of what you're scoring in a QBS response and, and the interview process. So does it work? Yes. Can it be improved? Well, it probably started to be improved about 15 years ago when they started looking more at design quality than just strictly, you know, you know, technical requirements. So how does one convey the inherently uncertain nature of the design process with procurement people who are looking to deal only with certainty? Because I'm assuming that's a big challenge, right? Yeah, and I guess that's, I mean, that's part of the part of the challenge. I mean, I guess the, the flip side to that is if the idea is that there's certainty in pricing professional services, there's an illusion today if we think that there's certainty in it the way we're doing it now, because as soon as something changes, as soon as there's a scope change or a schedule change, or there's any kind of a change in the process, then, then architects today are having to go back and say, you know, no, I need an extra for this thing or an extra for that thing because that wasn't in the scope. So there is no certainty today either. 
instead we we look at the way we're doing procurement as as a as a one one part of the hiring process i i think to bring more certainty is is to go through a qbs process if you were to, wanted to hire me as a, as your architect and you said, I want to design an office building and everything else, I could go through a QBS process and tell you, look, I'm going to give you the following services. It's all in. There's no extras. I'm anticipating, you know, you're going to change your mind twice. I'm going to anticipate this. You can go through that process, and then you would know up front what I've allowed for in the project and how I've arrived at my fee and know that 100% there's no uncertainty in it. And, and you could expect exactly uh, the best result because you know you have my dedication. If, if you were forcing me to compete with other people, I'd try to figure out how I could get you on board or I, how I could get hired and do that for the best price possible, knowing that I've got a few things in my back pocket that if something doesn't work out, I'm going to have to get you with an extra. And that makes a lot of sense. Actually, something I struggle fairly often with when I, I talk to new clients is that people tell me, oh, you're too expensive. And I've learned over time that my first question to them in response to that should be, but what are you comparing? Because mm -hmm. especially in what I do in the photography and communication services, everyone has a different scope of work and, and includes different things in their price. So I say, well, I might be more expensive, but I'm, are you getting more with me because I include more things? Or And let's compare apples to apples. And a lot of the time, those conversations go nowhere because people just focus on price and not so much on the value. But I, I can see how that would be a huge challenge for architects and, and designers. Which leads me to the next question. What can architects do to better demonstrate the value, which is what you were just talking about in the QBS process? demonstrate the value of what they do um, and uh, and make sure that this doesn't get put aside, you know? And there's a great example, um, at least in the way he talks about it, it's Joshua Prince-Ramus, the founder of Rex in New York, who's got a very clever way of setting up his contracts with his clients. So in some cases, clients are not able to get too involved in the way he designs building or bastardize the process or the design after it's being designed and, be, and when it's being built because he's got uh, certainty baked in the design. There's a great example of um, towers that he designed for a Korean developer and he did them in such a way that he would not, the developer would not be able to modify the design to the extent that it would denature it after the fact and I thought that was a very interesting um, approach because he knew that once the design was done he was out of the picture and he wouldn't be able to control it. So how can they do that better demonstrate their value and maybe integrate that in the procurement process? I was trying to think about this because I was thinking about these questions ahead of time and, and it's not easy um, and one of the some of the simple ways are things like you know develop a good reputation develop a reputation for your standards, your quality, your ability to bring something in on time, on budget, um, you know, keep your promises. Um, just like if you, if, you know, if I went out and I hired somebody and I said, I expect you to work Monday to Friday from, you know, nine to five. And the first week they were nine to five and the second week they were 10 to 4.30 and the third week they were 11 to three, I'd kind of go, 
hey, you know, we said nine to five, like, what's the deal? Why aren't you doing this? And you go, well, I just don't feel like it anymore. They would have let you down, right? And you'd have, you'd be disappointed. So we as architects, when a client says to us, like, I've got a budget of, you know, half a million dollars to do this tenant fit up, then you work hard to bring it in at half a million dollars. And when they say, I want it to be occupied by June 1st, you say to them right up front, okay, well, look, you want to occupy June 1st, you need six weeks for construction, that's May 15th, you need two weeks for permits, so that's May 1st. So here we are, May 1st, I've got one day to do all the design. Do you think that's fair? And you could have that conversation and, and then negotiate and be honest with them and say, look, I don't think that your budget's achievable, I don't think your schedule's achievable, and you're honest with your client, you tell them the truth. They want to hear that. You might not get the job, but they need to hear the truth, and they don't want to be lied to. I think that's a really important part of it. That's a very good way to put it, and I think it also comes with the idea that, and it's the same for me, we should not have any expectations of getting the job, but really do our best to provide the client with the best service and then the clients who recognize the value of that will hire you and the ones who only care about the budget will go to the cheaper guy and then bitch and moan that uh, the guy's playing gotcha and charging them with extras. So I think that's a very, very interesting way to, to answer that question. Um, so why in your mind do you think the architecture and design and construction industry is so accepting of procurement as it currently is instead of rebelling and say to hell with your stupid requirements this doesn't make any sense and we're gonna help you procure our services in the way that is fair for everyone that's a really tough one i mean a big part of it is that it's the only game in town you know if you're an architect and you're say your business is you know your, your practice has been in schools that's what you've done a lot of schools over time and you used to get schools because you belong to the right club or you used to know the right person and so you were one of three or four firms in town and you always got schools and and I'm not saying that was a good system because that sort of cronyism old boys network also isn't fair but if you used to get schools because you were a good architect and that's what you did well now you get schools because you know you're going in and you're doing the same school that you did 50 years ago and and we're that's your only experience and that's your only model and if you choose not to do schools well then you don't have any work and the only people in town who are building schools is the local school board so you can take their work or have no work and when it's the only game in town how do you how do you find a different game to play like you can't just sort of say oh well i don't feel like doing schools for the school board anymore i'll do schools for you know my friends like it, there's no other there's no other venue. So firms have to diversify and have broader experience. Um, and, and you have to get a breadth of experience so that you have a different business model. So if you lose one school, you get a community center nearby. Like there has to be that. So the other piece of that, um, of why we don't have, you know, why, why we continue to play this game is because everybody is playing the same game. All the procurement departments are using the same models. Uh, no one's willing to stick their neck out and say, we're going to choose to do things differently. And it's, it, it's the only game in town. So whether it's school boards or community centers or cities or municipalities or colleges or universities or provincial government or federal government, everybody's doing it the same way in, in various kind of structures, but they're all doing it the same way. 
Edmonton is one of the only places where things have changed. Well, sorry, and Quebec. Quebec has changed their model as well. And, and what they're doing there is doing something that's much more in a, in a QBS kind of a model. And what they're basically saying in Edmonton is, look, we're going to qualify a short list of people. Uh, we're going to ask that you know, those people, they, they do a design or they're going to compete for the work, but you know, whatever the, the competition process is, but this is the fee we're going to pay. And we're going to pay this fee plus or minus, you know, a couple of percent. And, and you have to justify why. And uh, that's what we're going to pay. And that puts everybody in a level playing field because now you know what the rate's going to be. And the fee that's per, per, uh, that's, that they're saying is a very fair fee. So you can calculate from that going in. You know what you're going to have to do, how you're going to do it. You don't have to think about what what the the right way is to get the job. All you have to do is think about how to do the best design you can within a very fair and transparent fee. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And actually, if you look at Edmonton, the quality of their public buildings has shot up in recent years. And if I'm not mistaken, it's due to the effort of... Um, Carol Belanger, who's the um, chief architect uh, for the city. That's right. There's definitely something to be said about that. Um, so is there a legal mandate to have the procurement process as it is, or it's just done that way because it's always been that way and nobody, and like you said, nobody's willing to try new things? Uh, there's no legal mandate to do that. And it's actually kind of interesting that... Um, It, the, the model is what it is. Um, a number of years ago, the federal government partnered with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities on an infrastructure purchasing guide. They call it the Infra Guide. And, and there was research done and everybody kind of bought into this process that said that quality-based selection is the best way to do procurement. And then the federal government said, oh, that's great. And then they put it on their shelf and they don't use it. There's different ways of doing procurement the way that it is right now. And the federal government usually does a two envelope system where your second envelope is, uh, is, is, is price and price is only worth 10% of the score. And so there's a whole sort of different ways of doing it, but um, no one else is really doing QBS the way it should be done uh, with the exception of a few isolated you know, school boards here and there. A lot of people say, oh, we, we use quality-based selection because fee is only 30% of our score. Well, 30% is still a hell of a lot. Even if it's 1% of your score, it can really affect the, the decision of who gets the job. Um, because, you know, think about it with quality. If you were to line up, say, the 10 best lawyers, right, make it even a smaller number, let's say you were to line up the three best lawyers in Canada, and you put them in a row and you said, okay, I want one of the three of you to do this job and defend me in court, then who's going to do the job? Well, are you think you're really going to get one of the three best lawyers in Canada who's going to undercut the other two for a lower price? You're going to pay the service for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. And are you going to really haggle about it? And then, and then that's the flip side to this that what people don't really understand is that what my services represent like one, less than 1% of the total life cycle cost and value of a project. And my effort can affect 80% of Uh, the life cycle value of a project in terms of its operating cost, its maintenance, the quality of life for people in the building, the productivity of the people in it. What I do has a massive impact on the end result and lasts for generations. If I, if I turned to you and said, hey, I can give you a building that never has a utility bill because it's net zero, or my building can cut the number of sick days of your staff down to 10% because it's a better building environment with better natural light and more productivity, better views, 
that's worth something. So mm -hmm. why would you cut my fee that cuts your ability to have a better business? Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and I'm kind of baffled from time to time. I get an RFP from potential clients and I used to answer them and then never got a job. So I stopped doing that because it's a waste of time. But let's end on this question because I think it's really important to kind of think about what the future of uh, procurement should be. Can you speak to what your ideal vision of procurement would be and what, and what that would, how that would work? My ideal vision of procurement would be a fair and transparent quality-based process that has room within it for, I guess, for outliers, for people who have never done that type of project before or who are new to the profession but have great ideas as, as a way of getting, broadening the profession so that everybody can succeed. You know, I'm not saying that there needs to be like some kind of a socialist network where work is handed out to every person in equal measure, but a way that, you know, if you're going to create a building that has lasting value for a community, uh, that instead of just looking at people who have done the same thing before, and those are the only people you're going to consider, well, open the market to new ideas, uh, create a model in which everybody can compete fairly and transparently to get the best value. I think that we really do a disservice to ourselves in Canada by undermining our procurement model by assessing quality in such a poor way. We, we reward firms and people who bid low, who um, do the same old, same old, who don't bring the innovations to ideas uh, that we need to create really important architecture and, and, and engineering and roads and bridges. And we really do a really disservice to our future generations because we have a flawed procurement model. Which leads to subpar buildings, which cost more to maintain and cause all sorts of problems down the road. And that, that makes perfect sense. So what do you think would need to happen? Like, because it's, it's a bit beyond our respective reach, right? I mean, we can advocate for it and we can keep spreading the word. And I think that's a great way to start. But what do you think would need to happen at a societal level for that mentality to change and procurement to significantly move in the right direction? I think that if, uh, if the public had a better understanding of the role of architecture within their lives, um, if they understood a little bit better that what an architect could do is make their, you know, their bike route home a little safer or a little bit more beautiful. And that if an architect made their grocery store more interesting or more innovative or use less energy, or if their home was a little bit nicer designed or a little better designed, it could save them money that all of these things have something to do with, uh, with architecture because architecture affects every one of us every day. And I think that if, if, if the public understood the role of architecture and engineering in a better way, they'd have a stronger appreciation for it and might turn around and start agitating for a better built environment. And if they agitate to the public, um, to the politicians who make these decisions, we might see a change. So is what you just said a call to arms for regular citizens to, uh, to start uh, flooding their MPs inbox? Absolutely. 
That's you should just great. follow my Twitter feed. Everybody asks for it, right? Everybody wants a better built environment. You got to change the model. And I got to praise you for being a relentless advocate because um, there's not a lot of people like you who stick their necks out to uh, to promote those ideas. So uh, I think that's great. And uh, do you want to tell the listeners what your uh, Twitter handle is so they can follow you? Sure. Uh, so everything, Facebook, Twitter, website, Instagram, all of that is the same. It's Architects DCA. So there's an at in front of it. So at Architects DCA, and you can find everything there. It's a website, find all of our links. We have probably weekly blogs and uh, quarterly publications and magazines and books and things like that. So there's all kinds of places to find us. And in my opinion, uh, very entertaining as well. So Tone, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to uh, taking part in this interview. I think it was very interesting. I've certainly learned a lot and I uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Until next time, ciao. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio and edited by Sydney Martindale.